If you want to go ahead and turn to First Peter, um, no specific place. We're just going to be in the whole entire book uh, the whole time. I'm so glad to be back. I've uh, talked to several people this morning that I just feel like I haven't seen in like a year. That's not a New Year's joke. I just literally feel like I haven't been here in that long. Like uh, I've been out with lots of different things. But as you've seen already in lots of ways, we are fresh off of our winter retreat. Um, and I still don't know. I'm pretty sure my body hasn't fully recovered yet. Um, but it was so, so worth it. Um, I'm so excited for all that we did. It was so much fun. Uh, as you already saw in the highlight video, we laughed a lot. I just want to ask everybody a question. When you take a shower, who, who washes their feet? Can I just get a show of hands for if you wash your feet when you shower? If your hand's not up, you're weird. But we, we were talking about, somehow the topic came up, we're talking about how Jesus washes feet or something spiritual like that, how you wash your feet in the shower. And, you know, people say normal stuff, you balance on your foot or whatever, prop on the wall. One girl, who I'm not going to name for her own sake, said that she gets the soap bottle and then just pours soap on the floor and then does this (laughs) to wash her feet. Like a dog kicking up grass. Like, that's what she said she does to wash her feet. So if you don't wash your feet or you find it hard to wash your feet, maybe you should try that. I don't know. I don't know when, what determines whether it's a good washing or not. But I thought that was mind-blowing. Like, that literally blew my mind. I, I thought she was joking at first. Um, I started laughing. But um, that, that was the highlight for me as far as, like, mind-blown. I can't believe you just said that. But uh, from playing Mafia and tons of card games to... Um, and yelling at each other, to diving on tables, to pick up the last spoon in a game of spoons, to snowball fights, to playing tag around the facility, to rolling ankles, to waking up with no power and no water so we couldn't eat or shower on the way home. Everything was so, so, so much fun. And and all jokes aside, the, the retreat, the whole trip was nothing short of absolutely incredible. So many of our students grew, began and grew in deep Christ-exalting relationships with each other. Small groups were phenomenal. Worship was great and Christ-centered. Several of our students helped lead us in worship that honors Christ. And on top of all of this, we saw eight students give their lives to Christ. Uh, it was just so, so good. Um, In every way you can think of, literally in every way you can think of, God was so gracious and so faithful to us. And before we dive in, I just wanted to say to you as a church, um, on behalf of all the students, thank you so much for loving our students so well. Because without your financial support, but most importantly, importantly, without your prayer um, for us and, and, and coming alongside us with hopes to see Christ exalted, none of this would have happened. So thank you, church, for um, everything you do for our students. Uh, Today... As we dive into the word, um, we're going to be diving into the book of First Peter. Over the course of the retreat, the weekend together, we walked through five messages and three quiet times all the way through the book of First Peter. And the Lord really blessed us. Today, what we're going to do is more or less an overview of the book. As we walk through First Peter, as you can tell by our lovely sweatshirts made by my equally lovely wife, the theme was Christ. Um, And we were seeing through first Peter what really the whole Bible teaches is that everything is about Jesus. We saw eight different attributes of Christ on the retreat. And today what we're going to do is walk through five of these attributes this morning. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. I want you to genuinely think about your answer. When you think about the person of Jesus, what comes to mind? Like when I say the name 
Jesus. What do you think about? And to be more specific, what do you think about apart from his work on the cross? You see, I'm convinced that we have a problem that we don't really think is a problem. We have a way smaller view of Christ than we actually should. Jesus is not just the guy who died on the cross to save you. Sure, that's the pinnacle point of his work. And I don't want to take anything away from that. Like that's the essence, the meat, the highest point of the gospel. But he is so much more. He has done, is doing and will do so much more than just die for our sin. And until we begin to see all that Jesus really is, we will be robbing ourselves of the joy of deeply and intimately knowing Christ. On the flip side, the more we see the beauty of Christ and the more we begin to know him more deeply and intimately, the more he will transform our lives. John 21, 25 has been on my mind a ton over the past couple of months. And it's just so mind blowing to me. Let's I'll, I'll read it for us together. John 21, 25, which is the very last verse of John's gospel. He's told the story of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the very last verse. This is what he says. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is mind blowing when we think about it. If John were to write down every single thing that Jesus has done, the world couldn't hold it. There's not enough trees or not enough paper and not enough ink to hold everything that Jesus has done. And here's the beautiful reality about Jesus, regardless of how big and out of this world and massive he is, we get to know him intimately. We get to call him Savior, Lord and King. With that in mind, let's dive into first Peter together. In no way is this list of five attributes we're about to look at exhaustive in any way. It's just hopefully going to give us a small taste of how wonderful King Jesus really is. So looking at these five attributes, number one, what we see is that Christ is our righteous replacement. Christ is our righteous replacement in the whole book. But most explicitly at the end of chapter three, we see the beautiful reality that Jesus is our righteous replacement. But in order for us to see the full magnitude of this reality, we must first see some truth that isn't good news. We are not righteous. You see, when Adam and Eve uh, were in the garden and they sinned, they doomed every single one of us for the rest of life. Scripture says that every person born of the seed of Adam is born in sin, which means all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. This makes all of us unworthy and unrighteous. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're nice to that coworker that no one else is nice to. It doesn't matter if you feed the homeless or offer them things or give them money or give them half of your salary. It doesn't matter if you follow every command you can to the best of your ability. It doesn't matter if you're at church every single Sunday and Wednesday. It doesn't matter. You will never be able to do enough to earn the title of righteous. And while this is really bad news, 
This is exactly where the hope of Jesus enters the equation. I'm sorry, this thing is awful. My ears are too small, I guess. It won't stay on. But this is where the hope of Jesus enters the equation. Look at verse 18 in chapter 3. Scripture says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We see two things in this verse about the beautiful gospel. Number one, Jesus lived righteously. While we are unrighteous sinners, Jesus was completely righteous and completely unstained. He never sinned. He lived the only perfect life that's ever been lived. He made no mistakes. He had no lapse in judgment. He never looked at a woman lustfully. He never slandered or gossiped. He truly lived the only perfect life that has ever been lived. But in spite of this perfect life, Peter tells us that number two, Jesus suffered unjustly. Although Jesus lived this perfect, radical, righteous life, he was, as Peter says, put to death in the flesh. And not only was he put to death, but he received the full wrath of God for sin. Why? Why would Jesus be willing to receive this wrath? That he might bring us to God. There was, is, and never will be a hope for anyone apart from Christ. We must be brought to God through Christ by his righteous life and his suffering death on the cross. But the good news doesn't stop here. Look at verses 21 and 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And here we see the last two pieces of this gospel. Number three, Jesus didn't just die. He rose victoriously. When Peter says here, baptism saves you, he's not referring to uh, being dunked underwater. He makes that very clear by saying right after this, not to serve as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The baptism Peter's referring to isn't by water. It's what the water baptism symbolizes. The baptism into Christ's death and the act of being made alive through his resurrection. That's the beautiful truth about the gospel is that it doesn't end when Jesus dies. Yes, it's through his death that our sins are forgiven, but it's in his resurrection where we are freed and where he claims victory. Through Christ's conquering of death, sin, Satan and hell, he has absolute victory. And because of this, we can have hope in him. And number four, Peter tells us that Jesus is reigning eternally. In verse 22, he says, after Christ rose, he went into heaven and is now sitting at the right hand of God. He has authority and he has power over everything. Listen, let's think really practically. Jesus could tell Mount Everest to uproot and fly into outer space and it would do it. Like really practically, that could happen if Jesus said so, because he has authority over everything. Think about that. The prince of heaven, the God of eternity, who everything was made by and through him. 
the one who took on flesh and died so we could live, is now sitting on his throne with power and authority over everything, advocating for us forever. This is the truth of the gospel, is that Jesus is our righteous replacement. There is none other than him who can save our souls. Not only does he uh, replace us with his righteousness, but it's through this righteous replacement that he's number two. He is our forgiveness and freedom. Jesus is our forgiveness and freedom. Let's look and read chapter two, verses nine through 16 together. And uh, this isn't like the main text, but for the sake of standing to read God's word, let's stand together and read um, chapter two, verses nine through 16. Here's what scripture says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. You can be seated. This is such a rich passage. And while we don't have time to go through all of it, we will dive into two things. First, let's look at our identity, our new identity in Christ's forgiveness. In verses 9 through 12, Peter says, In Christ, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possessions. Then he says, we are sojourners and exiles. In short... Here's what this means. In Christ, we are his chosen children. He has chosen us to call. God has chosen us to call us his children. And because we are chosen and called by God, we now have direct access to his throne as his royal priesthood. And we've been grafted into the nation of Israel as Gentiles who are now uh, in the family of, of God in his nation because of Christ's work. And guess what? He is holding us securely forever in his possession. Not only that, but in this world, we are aliens and we are strangers. Emphasizing the reality that our home is not here. Our home is in heaven. And I know this is a lot and it would be really delusional for me to assume that everyone here is going to remember everything I just said for me saying it one time. But here's how I do want to encourage us really simply. The identity that we have in Jesus is infinitely more valuable than any identity of the world. The identity of being known by Christ is so much more valuable than anything else. So church, stop looking to place your identity in what others think 
or in how much money you have or in how nice your house is or in how successful you are. It doesn't matter because the identity we have in Christ is more meaningful, powerful, secure and satisfactory than anything in the world. And as Peter encourages us in this new identity, he says in verse nine, God has given us this identity that you would proclaim his excellencies to the world. God doesn't call us to himself simply because he wants a buddy in heaven. He calls us to himself because he wants to use us to make much of his great name on earth. So church, the way we walk in our new identity practically is make it your goal at all times to make much of God, not yourself. And once you do this, you will be living to fulfill the purpose God has called you to. On top of this identity in Christ's forgiveness, Peter tells us that in Christ's freedom, we have liberty from sin. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Church, Christ has set us free. This is such great news, but we have to be careful because we must not view this freedom as freedom to just do whatever it is that I want to do. Peter tells us that this is foolish. Jesus hasn't freed us to sin because sin is evil and wicked. Jesus has freed us from sin. And Jesus frees us from sin in three very life-giving ways. First, he frees us from the punishment for our sin. Meaning, we no longer have to inherit the wrath of God that we deserve Because Jesus gives us freedom from that punishment when he took it all on the cross. Second, Jesus frees us from the power of our sin. Meaning as I walk through life, I'm no longer held in bondage to sin. The power that sin had over my head is no longer there because Christ has conquered it. And third, Jesus will will free us from the presence of our sin. Meaning when Christ returns... He will do away with all sin. He will remove all the sinful desires within us, remove all of the sin from around us, and the perfect unity between the Father and us that we see in the Garden of Eden will be restored. If you're seeking to fight sin, the only way to do it is to run to the freedom you have in Jesus. Only He has victory and only true freedom can be experienced in Him. And as we walk in and experience this freedom of Christ, we will come to know what Peter teaches us in chapter four, which for our sake is number three for us today. Christ is our strength. Christ is our strength. And in chapter four, Peter encourages us in three ways of how Christ is our strength in three different avenues of life. Number one, he's our strength in sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification is the process of being transformed into the image of Christ. And in verses one through four, Peter gives us a good general idea for what this looks like. Sanctification, living a sanctified life is living for the rest of life, no longer for human passions, but for God's will. Then he gives this honest, blunt truth. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. 
In other words, all the sins and all the pursuits of this world are fading away. And to pursue them is an absolute waste of time. But you, as followers of Christ, in this time now and forevermore, make it your goal to live to accomplish God's will above everything else. And the only way you'll do this, the only way you'll live life unto God's will and for his glory is by depending fully on the strength of Christ that he supplies to us to be transformed in his image as he sanctifies us. Number two, Peter says that Christ supplies strength in our serving. Really practically. In verse 10 of chapter 4, Peter says, As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What Peter is saying here is that God has graciously given us gifts and he's given each of us the gifts to serve the church. And here's the truth for everyone. Each of you who are followers of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, there's a 100% chance God has gifted you in some way. No matter how uh, uh, self-conscious you are or how insecure you think of yourself, God has gifted you in some way. So with that in mind, I want everyone to take a second. Ask yourself the question, how has God gifted me? As a follower of Jesus, how has God gifted me? What am I passionate about? What am I good at? How has God gifted me? And I want to challenge you as you think about that. Live, we're commanded, live and serve in that gifting as you rest in the strength of Christ so that God would be glorified and the church would be edified. Number three, third way Christ strengthens us is in our suffering. We know from the mouth of Jesus himself that we are to expect suffering on earth. He's told us that it's going to happen. This is true today, and it was definitely true for the Christians that Peter was writing to. These Christians were living under the reign of Emperor Nero. And let me just tell you, this guy was a brutal emperor. Just for, for some perspective, this man murdered his own mother. Then he murdered his first wife. And then he didn't like his second wife either, so he murdered her too. Then he set the city of Rome on fire so that it would be destroyed and he could rebuild it how he wanted to. And on top of this, this guy hated Christians. He hated Christians. He had them tortured and killed because they weren't submitting to him. Sometimes he had them torn apart by wild dogs. Other times he had them crucified. Then he would take these Christians dead, lifeless bodies, put them on sticks and light their bodies on fire and use them as torches to light the city at nighttime. This is who Nero was. This is the emperor that's actually responsible for crucifying Peter, who is the author of this letter. All of that makes what Peter says in verses 12 through 14 ridiculous. Just absolutely mind-blowingly ridiculous. He says, don't be surprised when suffering comes. When that suffering comes, when, when your best friend or your brother is being torn apart by a wild dog and then, and then uh, hung on a torch to light the nighttime, here's what you do. Rejoice. <laughs> what? 
Rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings. He says, look to Jesus and how he suffered and be glad that you're being counted worthy to suffer for his name. And Peter says, as you suffer for Christ's sake, you will rejoice when his glory is revealed. This is so incredible. Like, think about this from Emperor Nero's perspective. There is absolutely no winning. There's no winning. Nero is threatening these Christians and one of their biggest leaders with the thing that all of them should be scared of. Death. Like You should be scared to die. But it doesn't phase them at all anymore because they have Christ. So as we as Christians experience suffering from the world, we can look to Christ and endure because we know that the sufferings that are happening right now in this moment aren't worth comparing to the glory of being with our Savior forever. So endure sufferings so that at the proper time, you can embrace your Savior forever. And as we think about this strength in sanctification in serving and suffering and the burden to run from sin, here's a great burden-lifting truth. Our endurance and our perseverance does not depend all on us. It's not all on me. It depends on Christ. It depends on Christ as our substitute who did what we couldn't. It depends on Christ as our strength to give us what we need to pursue him and conquer sin. But it also depends on Christ as our shepherd. Which is what we see in the next attribute of Christ, that Jesus Christ is our chief shepherd. Our chief shepherd. In the practical world, the role of the shepherd is to herd the flock by making sure that none are to go astray and run off. Tend to the flock, make sure the flock has everything that they need and protect the flock by making sure that the flock is shielded from all threats and danger. This is what a shepherd, this is what the role of a shepherd is. And in scripture, oftentimes we see the leaders of the church referred to as shepherds and the people of the church referred to as sheep. So Peter starts chapter five with an exhortation to the elders or the shepherds of the church on how to lead. And it doesn't seem like much more than just an exhortation to those leaders until you hit verse four. Where Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears. This simple statement changes everything. First, this tells elders that they have an example in Jesus. They can look to Jesus because he displays the role of a shepherd Perfectly. And for us, those sitting under our shepherds, we can take heart knowing that Christ is our chief shepherd. And while Justin and Wendell and Jeff and Blooster and Russ may and will fail us, Christ never will. He will shepherd us perfectly forever. So knowing this really practically, we should ask the question, how is Christ shepherding us? Like, how is Jesus shepherding me? Peter tells us in chapter five, four things. First, Christ shepherds us with oversight. What this means really practically is that Christ is looking over us and he's looking out for us. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable that we should all be very familiar with, mostly from a song. Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and loses one, will he not leave the ninety nine in order to search for and find The one. The truth is a good shepherd cares about each of his sheep. 
Not one can be neglected or left behind. All of them are loved and deeply cared for. And the truth is, Jesus, our chief shepherd, will never let any of us leave his sight. He will not lead us astray, but he will keep us in close proximity to himself. He will never hand us over to the dangers that present themselves, but he will defend us perfectly and endlessly. Truly, nothing can pluck us from this shepherd's hand. Secondly, Christ shepherds us willingly. Have you as an individual ever had an experience in life with someone who was your leader, but they didn't like the fact that they were your leader? Like they didn't like that you were their responsibility. This is most common probably in teachers for students or in bosses in the workplace. Like our leaders just don't don't like leading us. Um, This often results in them being grumpy, mean, not understanding, uh, harsh, and it makes it a hassle to obey and follow them. But this is not true of Jesus. Jesus, the God of heaven, loves to shepherd us. He loves to shepherd us. It gives Jesus great joy to lead and watch over us. And because of this, it makes following Jesus and trusting his leadership enjoyable. It's a joy to follow and submit and trust Jesus. Third, Christ shepherds us eagerly. Christ shepherds us eagerly. This is such good news. Not only does Christ have joy in shepherding us, he longs to shepherd us. It's what Jesus wants to do. He's not lazy about it. He longs for it. And get this, Jesus shepherds us simply because he's eager to see us grow into his image. Like Jesus longs to see us love him more and live for him more. Think about that. The God of the universe, the one who is above all and in all and all things were created by him and for him and through him. This God, this Jesus rejoices in seeing little old Harbor grow into his image. That's so incredible. He's so eager to love and lead us and see us grow. Number four, Christ shepherds us as our example. Jesus looks at us and says, look at me and learn from me. Jesus says, come to me. Learn from me. Yoke up to me. Imitate me with full confidence that if we really do learn from him, if we really follow his example, we will live as closely in Jesus's footsteps as possible. And when people look at us, they will see Jesus. I don't know if any of you will relate to this um, or if you even think about people in this way. But in my life, there are several people um, that when I look at the way they act, the way they live, the way they talk, the way they love, they remind me so much of the character of Christ. Like I just look at them and think that's probably a lot like how Jesus would have walked and lived on earth. The reason This is true of them is because they've submitted to Christ as their shepherd for years and years and years, and they have learned from him. Jesus isn't just domineering over us like a cruel ruler who is above us. He's setting an example for us to follow as our loving shepherd. And church, Jesus, the good news is he will lead each of us for the rest of our lives. 
He will never leave us or forsake us. He will always keep us close to himself. He will, he will always make sure that we have all we need. He will always hold us secure in his hand. I love what one of the students said Wednesday night as one of their biggest takeaways from the retreat. They said, the same God who called you will never leave you. This is true because Jesus is such a good shepherd. And as we walk through life, we can have confidence and security in our salvation, not because of what we do, but because of how faithful Jesus is to shepherd and lead us. But what about when life is over? What about when my life on earth ends? Then what? Peter, being Peter, doesn't leave us wondering what's to come. In fact, I'd say eternity is probably the biggest thing Peter spends the most time talking about here. Once our time on earth is up, if we've recognized that Jesus is our righteous replacement, if we've trusted him to forgive and free us, if we've walked through life resting in his strength and resting and trusting in him to shepherd us, we will approach eternity and we will uh, be united with God in eternity. But as much as we don't think about it, Jesus will still be relevant in all of eternity, too. In fact, Peter tells us in the last attribute of Christ that Christ is our unfading inheritance. Christ is our unfading inheritance. When we think about our salvation in Jesus, I'd be willing to bet most of us think a lot about what Jesus has saved us from. He saved me from sin. He saved me from hell. He saved me from Satan. He saved me from death, which is really, really good. We should always think about that. But we rarely think about what Jesus has saved us to. Which is exactly what Peter calls us to do in this letter. Peter tells us in verse three of chapter one that God has called us to an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. And here's the beautiful truth. This unfading inheritance is Jesus. It is Jesus. In Philippians 1, uh, a lot of people should know this verse. Paul tells us that to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Seems a little cryptic. A couple verses later, though, Paul offers some reasoning and clarity. He says, for if I depart, for if I die, I get to be with Christ, which is Far better for Paul. The joy of death and the joy of heaven is Christ. It's nothing else. It's just that he gets to be with Jesus. When my sister and I were younger, it was our tradition to go spend a whole week at our grandparents house for the first week of summer. It was always so much fun. Our papa would stock up their house full of snacks with money that they really didn't, couldn't afford to spend. And I remember every morning, every uh, noon, and every night, he would drive to get us food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It never failed. He had so much joy in loving us in that way. He would sit upstairs and play make-believe game with us when me and Table would act like a dog and a cat, and he was our owner. It was weird. We were weird. Um, <laughs> He would, we would play card games with him and he would just watch us and enjoy us uh, laughing, even if we were laughing at his expense. He would sit outside and watch us jump up and down on the trampoline over and over doing tricks and would never, ever give us a rating that was different so we could brag to each other. 
He always made sure our bicycles had air in the tires so we could ride them wherever we wanted to go. I always made sure the basketball had air in it that was, and it was always pumped up. My backboard on my basketball goal broke one time. So he built me a wood one and we still use it to this day. He would always, no matter how many times I wanted to, watch the Goonies or watch the bench warmers with me as much as, as you could imagine. I've seen those movies more than anybody on earth. Summer was always so, so fun at Granny and Pawpaw's house. But unfortunately, my Pawpaw passed away a few years ago. And my grandparents lived on the farm that my brother lives on now. And here's the thing. My brother could give me a call and offer me all the exact same stuff. He could say, hey, I'll, I'll go get your food. I'll, I'll stock up with snacks. I'll play all the games, do everything that you want to do. Everything. And make, I'll make sure it's exactly like it was when you were growing up. And he says, come do it all over again, just for a week. The reality of it is, if he asked me to do that, I would say no. The idea of it doesn't appeal to me as much anymore. Not because I don't enjoy doing the stuff, but because my pawpaw wouldn't be there. In the same way, we have to realize, church, the joy of heaven is not simply that we won't get sick or we won't experience death. The joy of heaven is that we get to be with Christ, our Savior and our King for the rest of eternity. Our inheritance is King Jesus. And if He isn't in heaven, then heaven isn't worth it. And the good news of having and being with Christ for all of eternity is that this joy and this satisfaction will be inexpressible and it will never fade. We will constantly be seeing and tasting more and more and more of the goodness of who Christ is for all of eternity. And we will walk with him and live with him and worship him forever. This is what we're living for. And as Peter encouraged the early church, I want to encourage us today in the same way with verse 13. Peter says, therefore, because of the glorious truth of this unfading inheritance that we've just talked about, prepare your minds for action and be sober minded by setting your hope fully on the grace of Jesus that, listen, will be brought to you when Jesus returns. He's not calling us to look at Jesus's death. He's saying, look to the return of your king. Look to the embrace of the Savior that you will feel. Look to our restoration, confirmation, strengthening, and establishment in Jesus. And as you look to the glory of what's coming, live life on earth boldly for his name. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what type of suffering you endure, no matter how many people grow to dislike you because you won't shut up about Jesus, no matter what, live boldly for him. Have the heart of Paul that says, for I know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In light of this reality of the glory that's coming, live your life now for the glory of his name. He's so worthy. I pray this morning. 
The Lord has given you in some way a deeper knowledge and understanding of who Jesus really is. And I pray that this will result in authentic worship of Jesus and it would result in a bold life and witness for Jesus. As we go, I want to give you five action steps in light of the truth we've seen today. Number one, recognize that Jesus is your righteous replacement. I know, I know for a fact, someone here today is still trying to walk through life, doing good, living morally, going to church, and attempting to live a life that God will give you credit for. The truth is, there is no good that you can do to earn a relationship with God. But Jesus knew that. So he lived the perfect life that you're striving to. And he died the death that you deserve so that you could receive his righteousness. And as we recognize the truth of that reality, secondly, run to Jesus to forgive and free you. For those in this room who don't really know Jesus, or you've never really trusted Jesus to forgive you and save your soul, here's the good news for you. You can be forgiven and you can be freed from the bondage of your sin because of the work of Christ. We saw a beautiful picture of that on display in three young people's lives this morning. Not one older than the age of 15. You can give your life to Christ and be freed because of what he's done. Jesus died the righteous for the unrighteous so that you could trust him. Will you trust Jesus? Only he can forgive you. Nothing else can save your soul. And only he can give you true freedom. Number three, as we walk through life, rely on the strength that Jesus gives you. All of the Bible is riddled with scripture about how all of our strength, how we walk through, as we walk through life, is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. As a follower of Jesus, you, as an individual, Peter tells us, are called to live a holy life and you're called to serve the church and endure suffering. But the reality of it is, you will only be disciplined to obey Jesus as much as you're depending on his strength that he gives and that he supplies. You will not put your nose to the grindstone and say, I got to start living for Jesus and things just magically happen. You have to say, Lord, I need your strength. I'm fully dependent upon you. And you got to turn to his word and pray and seek to abide in Jesus at all times. Only then will you live your life for his glory. Number four, rest in submission to your chief shepherd. The same God who saved you is not going to leave you. He is holding you safely and securely in his hand. He is teaching you. He is guiding you. He is providing for you and he is protecting you. There's so much of a burden to be lifted. And we're able to see and rest in the faithful leadership of our perfect leader. Run to Jesus. Yoke up to Jesus. Learn from him as your shepherd and find rest for your soul. And fifthly, 
Rejoice in your unfading inheritance. Your inheritance isn't something you should look at as it's going to get here when, it's get, when it gets here. I'll, I'll enjoy it when it comes. Instead, you should be spending every day as much as you can looking forward to and rejoicing in the eternal, unfading inheritance that you have in Christ. Nothing will ever satisfy you like unity with Jesus. There will be no greater feeling than the restoration that comes when you are in Christ's presence. There will be no greater joy than meeting your Savior face to face and hearing Him say the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. So look forward and rejoice with excitement and expectation for that day. And then live life with an unwavering focus on making much of Jesus. Church, Jesus is so, so worthy of our worship. I mean, He really is. And He is so good to us and we are so undeserving. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe you don't deserve the love and goodness and grace of Jesus? We don't. But the God of creation loves us. The God of creation loves you. The King of heaven, as a follower of Christ, calls you his. Such a miracle that we get to know, rejoice in, and worship Jesus on earth. And that we get to be with Jesus in perfect unity with him for the rest of eternity. As we go... I want to encourage you to ascribe to Jesus the glory that is due to his name. Ascribe to Jesus with your worship and with your life the glory that's due to his name because he alone is worthy.